Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Daily Show. We are talking about Long Ago and Far Away, Chapter 3. So far, so good. I'm loving it. Um, Although, this was a very grim chapter. How skillfully Hudson recounted uh, the process of a child slowly coming to fathom death. I really liked how he was able to discern between the earlier times that the child encountered death but did not quite understand it or fully grasp it um, and the difference between that and when it slowly dawned on the, the, the child what it actually meant. Zock asks, what do you think he means by the eternal note of sadness? Techrific says it's an interesting and apt metaphor to see what happens to us in life as notes added to our soul the music of the heart must be played with a full orchestra and with all the notes and grace notes added to it so the idea of death comes in at this point in his young life with the death of the dog nothing is eternal but the sadness that each generation experiences once oh i always sneeze don't i right when i start the program the program. Um, nothing is eternal but the sadness that each generation experiences once we realize our mortality and the mortality of the people and animals around us is eternal in that sense. Um, a heavy chapter, I thought, but a good one. Three good ones so far. I'm pretty happy with the... Uh, the book so far. Yikes. Alright, kind of dive straight into chapter four here, um, which is called The Plantation. I am going to skip the preamble because it's a little bit spoilery. I remember better than any orchid, grove, or wood I have ever entered or seen. Do I remember that shady oasis of trees at my new home on the illimitable grassy plain up till now i had never lived with trees expecting those 25 i had told about and that other one which was called el arbol because it was the only tree of its kind in all the land here there were hundreds thousands of trees and to my childish unaccustomed eyes it was like a great unexplored forest there were no pines firs nor eucalyptus unknown in the country then nor evergreens of any kind the trees being all deciduous were leafless now in midwinter but even so it was to me a wonderful experience to be among them to feel and smell their rough moist bark stained green with moss and to look up at the blue sky through the network of interlacing twigs and spring with foliage and blossom would be with us by and by in a month or two even now in midwinter there was a foretaste of it, and it came to us first as a delicious fragrance in the air at one spot beside a row of old Lombardy poplars, an odour that to the child is like wine that maketh the heart glad to the adult. Here at the roots of the poplars there was a bed or carpet of round leaves which we knew well, and putting the clusters apart with our hands, lo, there were the violets already open, the dim purple-blue hidden violets, the earliest, sweetest of all flowers, 
the most loved by children in the land and doubtless in many other lands. There was more than time enough for us small children to feast on violets and run wild in our forest, since for several weeks we were encouraged to live out of doors as far away as we could keep from the house where we were not wanted, for just then great alternations were being made to render it habitable. New rooms were being added on the old building, wooden flooring laid over the old bricks and tiles and half-rotten thatch, a haunt of rats and the home of centipedes and of many other hibernating creeping things was being stripped off to be replaced by a clean, healthy wooden roof. For me it was no hardship to be sent away to make my playground in that wooded wonderland. The trees, both fruit and shade, were of many kinds and belonged to two widely separated periods. The first were the old trees planted by some tree-loving owner a century or more before our time, and the second, the others, which had been put in a generation or two later to fill up some gaps and vacant places and for the sake of a greater variety. The biggest of the old trees, which I shall describe first, was a red willow growing by itself within 40 yards of the house. This is a native tree and derives its specific name, rubra, as well as its vernacular name, from the reddish colour of the rough bark. It grows to a great size, like the black poplar, but has long, narrow leaves like those of the weeping willow. In summer I was never tired of watching this tree, since high up in one of the branches, which in those days seemed to me so close against the sky, a scissor-tail tyrant bird always had its nest. And this high open exposed nest was a constant attraction to the common brown carrion hawk called Chimango, a hawk with the carrion crow's habit of perpetually loitering about in search of eggs and fledglings. The scissor tail is one of the most courageous of that hawk-hating, violet-tempered tyrant bird family, and every time a Chimango appeared, which was about 40 times a day, he would sally out to attack him in mid-air with amazing fury, the marauder driven off. He would return to the tree to utter his triumphant, rattling castanet-like notes, and no doubt to receive the congratulations of his mate, then to settle down again to watch the sky for the appearance of the next Chimango. The second red willow was the next largest tree in the plantation, but of this willow I shall have more to say in a later chapter. The tall Lombardi poplars were the most numerous of the old trees and grew in double rows, forming walks or avenues on three sides of the entire enclosed ground. There was also a cross row of poplars dividing the gardens and buildings from the plantation, and these were the favourite nesting trees of two of our best-loved birds, the beautiful little goldfinch, or Argentine siskin, and the bird called firewood gatherer by the natives on account of the enormous collection of sticks which formed the nest. Between the border poplar walk and the foss outside, there grew a single row of trees of a different kind, the black acacia, a rare and singular tree, and of all our trees, this one made the strongest and sharpest impression on my mind, as well as flesh prickling its image in me, so to speak. It had probably been planted originally by the early first planter, and I imagine experimentally as a possible improvement on the wide-spreading disorderly aloe, a favourite with the first settlers. 
but it is a wild, lawless plant and had refused to make a proper hedge. Some of these acacias had remained small and were like old scraggy bushes. Some were dwarfish trees, while others had sprung up like the fabled beanstalk and were as tall as the poplars that grew side by side with them. These tall specimens had slender boles and threw out their slender horizontal branches of great length on all sides, from the roots to the crown, the branches and the bole itself being armed with thorns two, or four, two to four inches long, hard as iron, black or chocolate brown, polished and sharp as needles, and to make itself more formidable, every long thorn had two small thorns growing out of it near the base so that it was in shape like a round tapering dagger with a cross guard to the handle. It was a terrible tree to climb, yet when a little older I had to climb it a thousand times since there were certain birds which would make their nests in it, often as high up as they could, and some of these were birds that lay beautiful eggs such as those of the Goria cuckoo, the size of pullets' eggs of the purest turquoise blue flecked with snowy white. Among our old ancient trees, the peach was the favourite of the whole house on account of the fruit it gave us in February and March, also later in April and May. When what we called our winter peach ripened, peach, quince and cherry were the three favourite fruit trees in the colonial times, and all three were found in some of the quintessal orchards of the old Estancia houses. We had a score of quince trees with thick gnarled trunks and old twisted branches like ram's horns, but the peach trees numbered about four to five hundred and grew well apart from one another, and were certainly the largest I have ever seen. Their size was equal to that of the oldest and largest cherry trees one sees in certain favoured spots of southern England where they grow not in close formation but wide apart with ample room for the branches to spread out on all sides. The trees planted by a later generation, both shade and fruit, were more varied. The most abundant was the mulberry, of which there were many hundreds, mostly in rows, forming walks, and albeit of the same species of our English mulberry, They differed from it in the great size and roughness of the leaves and in producing fruit of a much smaller size. The taste of the fruit was also less luscious and it was rarely eaten by our elders. We small children feasted on it, but it was mostly for the birds. The mulberry was looked on as a shade, not a fruit tree. And the other two most important shade trees in number were the acacia blanca, or false acacia, and the Paradise Tree, or Pride of China. Besides these, there was a row of eight or ten Ailanthus trees, or Tree of Heaven, as it is sometimes called, with tall, white, smooth trunk crowned with a cluster of palm-like foliage. There was also a modern orchid containing pear, apple, plum and cherry trees. The entire plantation, the buildings included, comprising an area of eight or nine acres, was surrounded by an immense ditch or foss about 12 feet deep, 
and 20 to 30 feet wide. It was undoubtedly very old and had grown in width owing to the crumbling away of the earth at the sides. This is this in time would have filled and almost obliterated it. But at intervals of two or three years at a time when it was dry, quantities of earth were dug up from the bottom and thrown on the mound inside. It was in appearance something like a prehistoric earthwork. In winter, as a rule, it became full of water and was a favourite haunt, especially at night, of flocks of teal, also duck, of a few other kinds, widgeon, pintail and shoveler. In summer it gradually dried up, but a few pools of muddy water usually remained through all the hot season and were haunted by the solitary and summer snipe, one of the many species of sandpiper and birds of that familiar, of that film, sorry, and birds of that family, which bred in the northern hemisphere and wintered with us when it was our summer. Once the water had gone down in the moat, long grass and herbage would spring up and flourish on its sloping sides, and the rats and other small beasties would return and riddle it with innumerable burrows. The rats were killed down from time to time with the smoking machine, which pumped the fumes of sulphur, bad tobacco and other deadly substances into their holes and suffocated them. And I recall two curious incidents during these crusades. One day I was standing on the mound at the side of the most of the moat, or foss, some forty yards from where the men were at work, when an armadillo bolted from his earth and running to the very spot where I was, standing, began vigorously digging to escape by burying himself in the soil. Neither men nor dogs had seen him, and I at once determined to capture him, unaided by any one, and imagined it would prove a very easy task. Accordingly, I laid hold of his back, bone-cased tail with both hands, and began tugging to get him off the ground. Bait couldn't move him. He went on digging furiously, getting deeper and deeper into the earth. And I soon found that instead of my pulling him out, he was pulling me in after him. It hurt my small boy pride to think that an animal no bigger than a cat was going to beat me in a trial of strength. And this made me hold on more tenaciously than ever and tug and strain more violently. Until not to lose him, I had to go flat down on the ground, but it was all for nothing. First my hands, then my aching arms were carried down into the earth, and I was forced to release my hold and get up to rid myself of the mould he had been throwing up into my face and all over my head, neck, and shoulders. In the other case, one of my older brothers, seeing the dogs sniffing and scratching at a large burrow, took a spade and dug up a couple of feet to the soil and found an adult black and white opossum with eight or nine half-grown young lying together in a nest of dry grass and wonderful to tell a large venomous snake coiled up amongst them the snake was the dreaded vivora de la cruz as the gauchos call it a a pit viper of the same family as the furred lance the bush master and the rattlesnake. It was about three feet long. 
very thick in proportion, and with broad head and blunt tail. It came forth hissing and striking, blindly, right and left, when the dogs pulled the opossums out, but was killed with a blow of the spade without injuring the dogs. This was the first serpent with a cross I had seen, and the side of the thick blunt body of a greenish-grey colour blotched with dull black, and the broad flat head with its stony white eyelids gave me a thrill of horror. In after years I became familiar with it, and could even venture to pick it up without harm to myself, just as now in England I pick up the less dangerous adder when I come upon one. The wonder to us was that this extremely irascible and venomous serpent should be living in a nest with a family of opossums, for it must be borne in mind that the opossum is a rapacious and an exceedingly savage-tempered beast. This, then, was the world in which I moved and had been, had my being within the limits of the old rat, haunted foss among the enchanted trees, but it was not the trees only that made it so fascinating. It had open spaces and other forms of vegetation which were exceedingly attractive, too. There was a field of alfalfa, about half an acre in size, which flowered three times a year, and during the flowering time it drew the butterflies from all the surrounding plain with its luscious bean-like fragrance, until the field was full with them. Red, black, yellow and white butterflies fluttering in flocks around every blue spike. Canes, too, in a large patch, or break, as we called it, grew at another spot, a graceful plant about 25 feet high in appearance unlike the bamboo as the long pointed leaves were of a glaucous blue green color the canes were valuable to us as they served as fishing rods when we were old enough for that sport and were also used as lances when we rode forth to engage in mimic battle on the plain Uh, but they also had an economic value as they were used by the natives when making their thatched roofs as a substitute for the bamboo cane, which cost much more as it had to be imported from other countries. Accordingly, at the end of summer, after the cane had flowered, they were all cut down, stripped of their leaves and taken away in bundles and we were then deprived till the following season of the pleasure of hunting for the tallest and straightest canes to cut them down and strip of leaves and bark to make beautiful green polished rods for our sports. There were other open spaces covered with a vegetation almost as interesting as the canes and the trees. This was where what were called weeds were allowed to flourish. Here were the thorn apple. Chenopodium, sow thistle, wild mustard, red weed, vipers, bugloss, and others, both native and introduced in dense thickets five or six feet high. It was difficult to push one's way through these thickets, and one was always in dread of treading on a snake. At another spot, fennel flourished by itself as if it had some mysterious power, perhaps its peculiar smell. 
of keeping other plants at a proper distance. It formed what what It formed quite a thicket and grew to a height of ten or twelve feet. This spot was a favourite haunt of mine, as it was in a waste place at the furthest point from the house, a wild solitary spot where I could spend long hours by myself watching the birds. But I also loved the fennel for itself, its beautiful green feathery foliage and the smell of it, also the taste, so that whenever I visited that secluded spot I would rub the crushed leaves in my palms and chew the small twigs for their peculiar fennel flavour. Winter made a great change in the plantation since it not only stripped the trees of their leaves, but swept away all that rank herbage, the fennel included, allowing the grass to grow again. The large, luxuriant growing annuals also disappeared from the garden and all about the house. The big four o'clock bushes with deep red stems and wealth of crimson blossoms and the morning glory convolvulus with its great blue trumpets climbing over and covering every available place with its hop-like mass of leaves and abundant blooms. My life in the plantation in winter was a constant watching for spring. May, June and July were the leafless months, but not wholly songless. On any genial and windless day of sunshine in winter, a few swallows would reappear, nobody could guess from where, to spend the bright hours wheeling like house martins about the house, revisiting their old breeding holes under the eaves and uttering their lively little rippling songs as of water running in a pebbly stream. When the sun declined, they would vanish, to be seen no more until we had another perfect spring-like day. On such days, in July, and on any mild misty morning, standing on the mound within the moat, I would listen to the sounds from the wide open plain, and they were sounds of spring, the constant drumming and rhythmic cries of the spur-wing lapwings engaged in their social meetings and dances, and the song of the pipit soaring high up and pouring out its thick prolonged strains as it slowly floated downwards to the earth. In August the peach blossom, the great old trees standing wide apart in their grassy carpet, barely touching earth other than with the tips of their widest branches, were like great mound-shaped clouds with of exquisite rosy pink blossoms. There was then nothing in the universe which could compare in loveliness to that spectacle, I was a worshipper of trees at this season, and I remember my shocked and indignant feeling when one day a flock of green paraquets came screaming down and alighted on one of the trees near me. This paraquet never bred in our plantation. They were occasional visitors from their home in an old grove about nine miles away, and their visits were always a great pleasure to us. On this occasion I was particularly glad because the birds had elected to settle on a tree, close to where I was standing, but the blossoms thickly covering every twig annoyed the parrots as they could not find space enough to grasp a twig without grasping its flower as well. So what did the birds do in their impatience but begin stripping the blossoms off the branches on which they were perched with their sharp beaks so rapidly that the flowers came down in a pink shower and in this way in half a minute every bird made a twig bare where he 
could sit perched at ease. There were millions of blossoms, only one here and there would ever be a peach, yet it vexed me to see the parrots cut them off in that heedless way. It was a desecration, a crime, even in a bird. Even now, when I recall the sight of those old flowering peach trees with trunks as thick as a man's body and the huge mounds or clouds of myriads of roseate blossoms seen against the blue ethereal sky, I am not sure that I have seen anything in my life more perfectly beautiful, yet this great beauty was but half the charm I found in these trees. The other half was in the bird music that issued from them. It was the music of but one kind of bird, a small greenish-yellow field finch, in size like the linnet through though with a longer and slimmer body, and resembling a linnet too in its general habits. Thus in autumn it unites in immense flocks, which keep together during the winter months, and sing in concert and do not break up until the return of the breeding season. In a country where there are there were no bird catchers or human persecutors of small birds, the flocks of this finch called misto by the natives were far larger than any linnet flocks ever seen in England. The flock we used to have about our plantation numbered many thousands, and you would see them like a cloud wheeling about in the air, then suddenly dropping and vanishing from sight in the grass, where they fed on small seeds and tender leaves and buds. On going to the spot they would rise with a loud humming sound of innumerable wings and begin rushing and whirling about again, chasing each other in play and chirping, and presently all would drop to the ground again. In August, when the spring begins to infect their blood, they repair to the trees at the intervals during the day, where they sit perched and motionless for an hour or longer, all singing together. The singing time was when the peach trees were in blossom, and it was invariably in the peach trees they settled and could be seen, the little yellow birds in thousands amid the millions of pink blossoms pouring out their wonderful music. One of the most delightful bird sounds or noises to be heard in England is the concert singing of a flock of several hundreds, sometimes a thousand or more, linnets in September and October, and even later in the year before these great congregations have been broken up or have migrated. The effect produced by the small field finch of the pampas was quite different. The linnet has a little twittering song which breaks in it and small chirping sounds and when a great multitude of birds sing together the sound at a distance of 50 or 60 yards is as of a high wind among the trees but on a nearer approach the mass of sound resolves itself into a tangle of thousands of individual sounds resembling that of a great concourse of starlings at roosting time but more musical in character it is as if hundreds of fairy minstrels were all playing a stringed and wind instruments of various forms, every one intent on his own performance without regard to the others. The field finch does not twitter or chirp, and has no break or sudden change in his song, which is composed of a series of long-drawn notes, the first somewhat throaty but growing clearer and brighter towards the end so that when thousands sing together it is as if they were sang in perfect unison, the effect on the hearing being like that on the side of flowing water or of rain when the multitudinous falling drops appear as silvery grey lines on the vision. It is an exceedingly beautiful effect and, so far as I know, unique among birds that have the habit of singing in large companies. I remember that we had a carpenter in those days, an Englishman named John, a native of Cumberland, who used to make 
us laugh at his slow, heavy way when after asking him some simple question we had to wait until he put down his tools and stared at us for about 20 seconds before replying. One of my older brothers had dubbed him the Cumberland Boar. I remember one day on going to listen to the choir of finches in the blossoming orchard I was surprised to see John standing near the trees doing nothing and as I came up to him he turned towards me with a look which astonished me on his dull old face that look which perhaps one of my readers has by chance seen on the face of a religious mystic in a moment of exultation those little birds have never heard anything like it he exclaimed then trudged off to his work like most Englishmen, he had, no doubt, a vein of poetic feeling hidden anywhere, hidden away somewhere in... Oh, sorry. Like most Englishmen, he had, no doubt, a vein of poetic feeling hidden away somewhere in his soul. We also had that other kind of concert singing by another species in the plantation. This was the common purple cowbird, one of the Trupial family, exclusively American, but supposed to have affinities with the starlings of the old world. This cowbird is parasitical, like the European cuckoo, in its breeding habits, and having no domestic affairs of its own to attend to it, lives in flocks all the year round, leading an idle, vagabond life. The male is of a uniform deep purple-black, the female a drab or mouse colour, the cowbirds were excessively numerous among the trees in summer, perpetually hunting for nests in which to deposit their eggs. They fed on the ground, out on the plain, and were often in such big flocks as to look like a huge black carpet spread out on the green sward. On a rainy day they did not feed, they congregated on the trees in thousands and sang by the hour. Their favourite gathering place at such times was behind the house where the trees grew pretty thick and were sheltered on two sides by the black acacias and double rows of Lombardy poplars, succeeded by double rows of large mulberry trees forming walks, and these by pear, apple and cherry trees. From whichever side the wind blew, it was calm here, and during the heaviest rain, the birds would sit here in the thousands, pouring out a continuous torrent of song, which resembled the noise produced by thousands of starlings at roosting time. But was louder and different somewhat in character owing to the peculiar song of the cowbird, which begins with hollow guttural sounds followed by a burst of loud clear ringing notes. These concert singers, the little green and yellow field finch and the purple cowbird were with us all the year round, with many others which it would take a whole chapter to tell of. When in July and August I watched for the coming spring, it was the migrants, the birds that came annually to us from far north, that chiefly attracted me. Before their arrival, the bloom was gone from the peach tree and the choir of countless little finches broken up and scattered all over the plain. Then the opening leaves were watched and after the willows, the first and best loved were the poplars. During all the time they were opening, when they were still a yellowish green in colour, the air was full of the fragrance, but not satisfied with that I would crush and rub the new small leaves in my hands and on my face to get the delicious balsamic smell in fuller measure. And of all the trees, after the peach, the poplars appeared to feel the new season with the greatest intensity, for it seemed to me that they felt the sh sunshine even as I did and they expressed it in their fragrance just as the peach and other trees did in their flowers.
and it was also expressed in the new world sorry in the new sound they gave out to the wind the change was really wonderful when the rows on rows of immensely tall trees which for months had talked and cried in that strange sibilant language rising to shrieks when a gale was blowing now gave out a larger volume of sound more continuous softer deeper and like the wash of the sea on a wide shore the other trees would follow and by and by all would be in full foliage once more and ready to receive their strange beautiful guests from the tropical forests in the distant north the most striking of the striking of the newcomers was the small scarlet tyrant bird which is about the size of our spotted flycatcher all a shining scarlet except the black wings and tail this bird had a delicate bell-like voice but it was the scarlet colour shining amid the green foliage which made me delight in it above all other birds yet the hummingbird which arrived at the same time was wonderfully beautiful too especially when he flew close to your face and remained suspended motionless on mist-like wings for a few moments his feathers looking and glittering like minute emerald scales then came other tyrant birds and the loved and the loved swallows the house swallow which resembles the english house martin the large purple martin the golodrina domestica and the brown tree martin then too came the yellow-billed cuckoo the cooey cooey as it is called from its cry year after year i listened for its deep mysterious call which sounded like gal 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 in late september even as the small english boy listens for the call of his cuckoo in april and the small human-like character of the sound together with the startlingly impressive way in which it was enunciated always produced the idea that it was something more than a mere bird call later in october when the weather was hot i would hunt for the nest a frail platform made of a few sticks with four or five oval eggs like those of the turtle dove in size and of a green pale colour there were other summer visitors but i must not speak of them as this chapter contains too much on that subject my feathered friends were so much to me that i am constantly tempted to make this sketch of my first years a book about birds and little else there remains too much more to say about the plantation the trees and their effect on my mind also some adventures i met with some with birds and others with snakes which will occupy two or three or more chapters later on all right there we go that's chapter 4 it's mostly about birds and trees oh that's a bit of a that was a bit of an effort that one i'm not going to lie pretty i liked the descriptions but it was all descriptions so a little bit of a drag all right folks Keen to hear what you think about it on the subreddit. I'll see you tomorrow.